And now for something completely different. After a night of insomnia and brief sleep, I wake up and put the kettle on. I'll turn on New York One News and listen to the events that have already transpired that morning or during my mostly sleepless night. I'll check the weather and I'll look at Twitter before leaving the house. Depending on my schedule that day, I'll either take a taxi, Uber, or a subway to my destination. You don't take the subway. (laughs) That's my husband, Bobby. And he's right. I mostly walk or take a car to a meeting. It isn't until I arrive at my destination when I realize I've forgotten to eat before I left home. So I'll quickly grab something from the corner store, a banana or trail mix. Later that evening, I'll go to the grocery store to pick up a few needed items and some not-so-needed items. And if it's been a particularly stressful day, I'll meet up with my husband or a friend for a drink and discuss the news of the day. News these days is usually stressful. Since Trump was elected, small talk and escapist pleasantries have mostly fallen to the wayside, at least for me. While that routine is not particularly arduous, what exists in and around all of the seemingly mundane details of our day and night is policy. And policy is personal. Yes, our community has problems. Problems that involve us all, and also our government. There are people who don't always think about the policies that are protecting or not protecting them. That can be a point of privilege that I'll address a bit later. For many people, policies can feel like a dull hum in the background that they've mostly tuned out. And of course, many of you might be too busy to contemplate what role policies have played and continue to play in your life. But in this episode, I want you to think about it. I want you to examine the policies that are protecting you, that are obstacles for you, and that are hurting you, your family, and your community. If you'll indulge me just for a moment, let's revisit that average day in my life through the lens of policy and legislation. While I do my best to sleep through the night, sometimes my eye will catch just for a moment this flickering green light from the smoke detector on our ceiling. New York City law requires the installation and maintenance of a smoke and carbon monoxide detector in each apartment. Thank goodness for that. When I wake up in the morning and heat up the water to make my coffee, I think about how this water is some of the most protected water in the United States. In New York, we have the nation's largest municipal water system. Our water is protected by countless policies that prevent pollutants from permeating our water supply. And the land that the water sits in and runs through is also protected by various EPA policies. Time for a look at what's in the Friday morning papers. It is almost all. When I watch the news in the morning and check my Twitter feed throughout the day, I know both are regulated by the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC plays an indelible role in regulating media in the United States. That includes radio, television, cable, and of course the internet. And everything that my favorite news reporter says is protected by the First Amendment. When I walk outside and take a deep breath, I know the air is mostly protected by the Clean Air Act, 
which is a federal law designated to controlling the air pollution on a national level. When I walk past the city buses and taxis, I know they're regulated by the National Emissions Standard Act, officially known as the Motor Vehicle Air Pollution Control Act. When I hail a taxi or order an Uber to go to one of my meetings, I have access to a seatbelt because of the Motor Vehicle Safety Standard Act that took place in 1968, requiring all vehicles to be fitted with seatbelts. When I pick up food from the grocery store, I know that through the United States Department of Agriculture, it provides food safety and inspection services that are responsible for ensuring that the United States commercial supply of poultry, meat, eggs, fruit, and vegetables are safe, mostly wholesome, and correctly packaged and labeled. When I drink, I can think the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment, or Prohibition. All of those policies pieces of legislation and amendments can be viewed as helpful, but not without their flaws. You can see why we don't think of them on a regular basis. But for communities, especially marginalized communities, the effects of many past and present policies do not fade so easily in the background. We're damaged by policies that do not legally end discrimination were injured by policies that do not legally protect our civil rights, equity, equality, and equal access. We're still reeling from a series of policies that a lot of folks in the United States would rather forget and not talk about. Policies that have scarred our families, our communities, affecting our economic, mental, and physical well-being. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Because these policies have hurt me too. And that's why it's personal. Yes, this is Willie Long. At the sound, please use your name and phone number. God bless. Have a great day. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, Dad. It's Maya. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions for my podcast. Um, since you got married after Loving versus Virginia, um, I wanted to see what it was like to have gotten married during that time period or if you even thought of it at all. Um, anyways, give me a call back uh, when you get this. Okay, bye. My family is one example of many American families that have both benefited from and were irreparably damaged by some of our domestic policies. I come from a family of immigrants who came here on their own volition. I also come from a family of enslaved people who did not. On my mother's side, some of my family greatly benefited from a few pieces of domestic policy, like my mother's father, Dr. Belisario Contreras, who benefited from the Federal Art Project under the WPA, better known as the Works Progress Administration. The Great Depression left millions of able and willing Americans bewildered and jobless. In 1933, the federal government came to the help of local agencies which had fought a courageous but losing fight against the growing need for relief. 
But the dole was not enough. Good, sound men and women wanted to earn the help they got, to hold up their heads, to keep themselves from going rusty. Retail business needed their purchasing power to stimulate trade. And all over America, communities needed all sorts of improvements in public services, which had been cut off or postponed during the lean years when local revenues were pitifully low. The Works Progress Administration was launched late in 1935 as the key agency in the federal work program to employ able people from relief roles. Projects were inaugurated and sponsored by local officials who also subscribed local funds to buy materials and supplement the federal money, which went largely in wages to the workers. My grandfather, then having served in World War II, also benefited from the GI Bill. No, this time it's going to be different. Yeah? What makes you so sure? Because in Washington, there were a group of congressmen with long memories who were in the last war. They knew that when a man gets out of the Army or Navy or Marines, He's worried most about a job, an education, and a home. And that's why Congress, led by the President, passed the law. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill of Rights. Which was signed by FDR right as the war was ending. Some of the benefits given to U.S. soldiers were education and training opportunities, job-finding assistance, loan guarantees for a home, farm, or business, my grandfather left college debt-free and bought his home with a VA loan. While he was a Latino man, he was very light-skinned, and he had rid himself of his childhood accent when he came to America and was perceived as white, thus benefiting under that lens. While the WPA had some programs that benefited African Americans, like the Federal Music Program, which helped give Black composers a platform, the WPA didn't benefit African Americans as greatly as it did white America. In fact, some problems of segregation got worse under the Federal Housing Administration, which was supposed to provide free and low-income housing, but instead caused white flight, forced segregation, and then the buildings became dilapidated as the government began pulling investments from those projects. The WPA and GI Bill were helpful policies, but they didn't equally benefit everyone. They certainly didn't end discrimination or stop segregation. And so my grandfather would have an opportunity to create wealth in a way that was never a realistic option on my father's side. While my father did have a modicum of success as a basketball player, he led his high school team to the finals. He played college basketball at UNM under head coach Bob King. He still ranked as their top 10 all-time leading scorer. He was selected by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the second round of the NBA draft, but instead he spent three seasons at the American Basketball Association with the Floridians, then the Denver Rockets, which became the Denver Nuggets. In 1999, my dad was inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. While all those successes are wonderful, at the time, that was really the only path available or acceptable for black men to achieve success on a national level, something that wasn't available for black women. My father was born 15 years before Jim Crow laws officially ended. The discrimination that he grew up with has never left him. I'll let him explain. Hi, Dad. Hey, 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 hey. what's going on? Um, nothing. Just, uh, just giving you a call. Um, All right. <laughs> How's everything going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just working on a bunch of stuff as per usual. How about you? Oh, just, just, just great. Life's just great. Good. Good. 
So I'm calling you because I do a podcast like every week, and I just do it on like policies. But I want to talk about a couple policies that were kind of big policies when you were growing up, and you know maybe what you thought of them or if you didn't think of them. Like one of them, I'll kind of bounce around if that's okay. There's no right or wrong answer or anything. It's just really like what you thought about during that time period. So okay. um, so when you were, um, especially when you were growing up in Indiana, um, you know, a lot of civil rights things were happening then. And mm-hmm. you were obviously like, a teenager during some of these time periods. So I know teenagers are the first thing on their mind isn't always necessarily civil rights. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. um, but was it in the background, like Martin Luther King, obviously, um, mm-hmm. what was kind of the conversation when you were a kid? Like was it among your family or among your sisters or, or your mom or – you know, did you have discussions of what what this meant about what he was doing, or um, you know, because obviously with with the right to vote, um, black people really weren't allowed to vote until exactly. after exactly. after civil rights. So, what was what was the feeling then about all that? Well, I knew there was a strain, and I knew there was a prejudice because my dad could not read or write, mm-hmm. and my mom. She lived in, it was in Mississippi, I forgot at the time. Black people could only go to the sixth grade, then they had to drop out of school. Mm-hmm. So I realized then what was going on. But my parents wanted me to grow up to be who I wanted to be. Right. They did not, they were not great fans of white people, my mother and father. Right. Yeah. You know, but my dad died, who's 39 years old, mm-hmm. and he could not read or write, But my and my mom was in the sixth grade, but she wanted us to get an education. And she said, you know, she kept apologizing because when I came home, she couldn't help me with my homework. I mean, there's right. just no way. She felt really bad about that. So that right. was a greater – I knew as a child there was a disconnect between black and white. I knew there was a prejudice. So, I mean, I dated who I wanted to, but at the same time, if I saw a white water fountain and a black water fountain, I would always drink out of the white water fountain. You <laughs> Why not, is that? You, you were not – oh, no. You were not going to tell me to drink out of this filthy fountain that was just, I mean, it had filth all over it. So, but once again, when you're an athlete, you get away with just anything. And you just, you know, I didn't sit back the bus. Right. You know, but they wanted to. But there were times where you were told to do that, or it was was expected of that. And there were, there were water fountains. That yep. saw that word. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just was kind of, I was in that state of mind where you're not going to tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, right. I'll work with you. I'll be a friend to you. I'll talk to you, but don't treat me like an animal. It, that's not right. going to happen. I was of a stubborn nature, and I, I mean, I went through hell, but it that. didn't bother me like it did. Yeah. It affected some of my. Some of my uh, peers a lot. Yeah. 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 Why do you yeah. think it affected them? Because um, was it so? Was it the segregated um, in your town? Um, like, was there kind of a black part of town and a white part of town then? When you yeah, were growing up in Indiana. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah, it and was. And then it was, did you live in the black part of town? But then go to white school? Yeah, I lived in the black part of town. Yeah. But I went to a white school. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, now, do you think I if you did. weren't an if you if you weren't a a a, a big athlete then and Mr. Basketball and all that, do you think that um, if you say like you were just in school for school, um, do you think there would have been different um, different outcomes? Like would you have stayed at the black school then? Because the white school came calling because you were so talented. Am I right? Well, yeah, well, the black school, the, the black school made a mistake. They came and they said, Miss Long, we want uh, – we want Willie to come to our school. We'll have, we'll give him learning. We'll buy him clothes, and we'll do this. We'll do that. Right. And so my mom said, and we'll get him a car. And then the white coach came and said, look, we're gonna make sure Willie studies in school. We're gonna make sure he goes to college. We're gonna right. make we're gonna give him tutors here. So my mom was listening to education. She right. didn't see black and white. She didn't want me to be like her and my dad. Right. So that's the only thing she saw. She wasn't. She wasn't jumping up and down by me going to this predominantly white school, but he mentioned education, and that right. was that was the end of the that was the end of the discussion. Right. Yeah. Now, um, so your mom and dad, um, when they met, did they meet in Mississippi or did they meet in Indiana? Kentucky. They met in Kentucky. Okay, they met in Kentucky. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. And then you said on your father and mom's side or one or the other, um, their parent or grandparent was a sharecropper? Yeah. Yeah, they, they they had a home, they had land, but it didn't belong to them. Right. Right. And is that was that they your just, grandfather? Was that your grandfather? Yeah. Okay. Grandfather and grandmother. Uh-huh. Did they ever talk, did your mom or your dad ever talk about what it was like to have like sharecropper parents, or was that something they didn't want to talk about? No, they didn't talk about it. And the reason I knew that it, that it was something dear to their heart, I remember when I, because I, I used to go to Mississippi every summer, me and my sister, my mom was sent us to, to, down to Mississippi to live with the grandparents for the yeah. two months during the summertime. Well, one time I asked my mother, I said, Mom, I can make some extra money because my cousin, all my cousins used to pick cotton in the fields. So I said, Mom, I can make some extra money by uh, going under the fields and picking some cotton. My mom said, you will never, ever pick cotton. Mm. She says, you won't understand it now, but you will never, ever pick cotton. So later on, as I got older, I asked her. She said, son, you'd have kept that attitude, that low mentality and attitude if I'd have let you do that. You just thought that was the only way to make a living. And I'm thought, oh, okay. Because mm. we need the money. And right. Thought, yeah. But she said no. So I, none of my family, me and my sister never saw the cotton fields. We saw them, but we never worked in them. Mm. No, no. And, and so you said that um, when you had, I don't know if it was your sister who had the information, but that, um, that where, I don't know if it was on both your mom and dad's side that you were talking about wealth, Mississippi. Is that right? I don't know if I had yeah, that we, right. Yeah, um, we were in Wall. We went to Walls, Mississippi for a while. 
Okay, well. And then we were in, in Memphis, Tennessee. We were always moving around in the south a little bit because all, mm-hmm. all of our cousins were in those different areas. Right. Mm-hmm. And and did they ever talk, or did your mom or your dad, did they ever talk about slavery in the family, or was it just something that was too painful to discuss, but that you knew it was there? I They never talked about it to us. Right. Never. No, yeah. never. Now, I'm not sure why, Maya, but yeah. they never, ever brought it up. Uh-uh. Never brought right. it up. No. And how did you find out um, that your, I guess it would be great-grandparents, um, how did you know that they were slaves in Mississippi? Oh, that was that was through a, a, a friend of mine that he was, he was a friend of the family. Mm-hmm. He knew about everything. My family, right. my grandparents never discussed any of this, but he mm-hmm. said, well, keep this quiet among the family members. Let me tell you exactly what goes on, who likes who, who does not, as far mm-hmm. as white people, slavery. He said, I'm right. going to let you know what goes on. So he, he discussed it with me. Right. And he just told me, I'm not discussing my mom and dad because they, they, they won't talk about it. Right. So I talked to him about it. Uh, he's an older gentleman, and he mm-hmm. discussed it with me. And that was that's how I found out about all these different things and the hardships, the, the, the hangings and the castrations and everything. Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a part of Mississippi where a lot of black people were were hung, and mm-hmm. uh, but lynched. I oh lynched yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah oh yeah 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 by the KKK mm-hmm. yeah yeah so and so do you think that some of these I these things were what kind of were heavy with your dad or it, I mean it could have been other things but do you think that these are some of the frustrations that he felt that some of his opportunities were limited. Yeah, I, I really, to be honest with you, I think that's what killed him. Because yeah. I remember one day we were sitting at home. I was about 10 years old. And I said, I said, Dad, can I help you? Would you like me to help you to learn to read and write? Yeah. He, he almost, he took his hand and slapped me for, about a mile across the floor. Mm. My mother came up and said, if you ever hit that boy again, and she's a Christian woman, she yeah. said, if you hit that boy again, I'll kill you. Mm. And I knew then how frustrated he was with his life. Right. You know, because, you know, I mean, I didn't understand it then, but and my mom never talked about it. But as I started reading about it, as I got older, when people yeah. are illiterate, it's a lot of frustration built up inside. Yeah. You know, so and I didn't quite understand that. You know, I just, he was my dad, and I thought, everybody have to read or write. Yeah. Man, he, he just didn't like that at all. So. Did he um, Did he ever talk to your mom, or did she ever mention what it is that he, if he had had opportunities, what he would have wanted to do? Uh-uh. Never, Never talked about it. Mm. Uh-uh. No, mm. mom. My mom kept everything moving forward. She she was the type of person. She never looked back. Yeah. She just she just never. There was nothing ever negative in the family. Yeah. You know it was. It's like she taught all of her boys to cook, sew, iron, clean house, and we all said, "Mom, 
Why are we doing this? She says, I want you to marry because you want to, not because you have to. Mm. So all of her boys, she, but she kept everything positive. We never right. knew what was negative. Anytime right. we got around people who gossip, she would always say, let's go. Right. If we got around anybody who was talking negative about somebody, she would say, let's go. Right. So, and then that stayed with us as we grew up. We just we just never had any drama in our life. And if it was drama, it just was embedded us that we just walked away from it. We didn't want anything right. to do with it. So, yeah. Right. So she just kept everything positive for the family. You know, she didn't believe in looking back. She didn't believe right. in the past, you know. And I said, Mom, don't you ever think about the past? She says, son, she says, you can't drive a, you can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> That's I good. Said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I is said, so all right then. Yeah, That's but she, she, only went, she only went to the sixth grade, but she knew how to have money. She knew how to have her kids. And she knew how to talk to people. And but when she told me, you yeah. can't drive a car and look in the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. that floored me. And I, I've remembered that to this day. Right. And, yeah. But she never so, talked about slavery and every, nothing like that. Uh-uh. I mean, I think, you know, it was that's incredibly painful to talk about. It's not something oh, that yeah. is, you yeah. know, it's not something that is, a, a storybook, right? That's just like you know, like if a white person was like reads about slavery, they can go, "Oh, that's awful," you know. But if you're yeah. a black person in America, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's and right, right. I, no, you know, if yep. you're a descendant you're right. of slavery, it's not something that is distant for you. It's part that's of right. you and part of your blood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So, did your mom feel? Um, did she feel limited in her opportunities because of only being educated to sixth grade? And that was a, and that was a policy in Mississippi that black people could only go into sixth grade at that time. Yes, that was in some states. I I don't think it was in all the states, but in most states, black people could not go past the sixth grade. They want them right. back out in the fields working, you know. And so that was it. I'm not sure what states there were. I do know because I know I talked to some guy at my church. He, we always talk about history and 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 and, and yesteryears. He's older, a lot older. Than, he's older than I am, and right. he knew about all that. And he's the one that told me that. So I looked it up, and he was right. I said mm. sixth grade, because I, I told my mama went to sixth grade. He said she lived in a state that only allowed her to go to the sixth grade. And I'm going, right. you're kidding me? He goes, no. And he said right. your dad probably never even had a chance to go to school. Right. You know. So. Wow. Oh. Okay. Well, yeah. also there was a problem too with with home ownership um, and black people during that time period because, like, um, when black people served in World War II, uh, when they got back, they weren't allowed to get the same home loans that white people were able to get. No, and so white no. people were able to kind of build an aspect of wealth, like they buy the mm-hmm. house, they can pass it down to their kids, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, and yep. so. Um, and I know that you, because you were an athlete, you, you did have some, you know, uh, some opportunities that, that were a little bit different than that were happening for for some black people during that time period. But mm-hmm. um, did you feel, even in Colorado, did you see any kind of, you know, discrimination there once you were there, or um, did did you not really? Did you not really think about it at that point, or did you did you feel that things were kind of starting to change during that no, time period? I, I, 
I've seen I've seen prejudice since I was a small child. Yeah. But I always was able to navigate through it because I just never I just never let it bother me. Right. You know, I I've seen it cause people to make them sick. They had strokes, they had heart attacks, they had mm-hmm. diabetes, they had high blood pressure. You know, and all that stuff builds on you when you're not allowed to do something that you want to do. Right. You know, and you gotta talk you gotta talk nice to someone and that person treating you like dirt. Right. You know, so I just never allowed that to happen. Right. You know, when I spoke to people, I looked them straight in the eye, and I would, I would tell them, you know, what do you mean by that? I said, I don't quite understand that. You right. know, I said, or I would say, are you making this a racial thing? And right. whenever I mention that and you're an athlete, they always back off. Mm. They always back off. So I was always normally able to get what I want. You know, that's the reason you see so many athletes on TV complaining about other athletes that they have a platform to stand on, but they're not using it like Muhammad Ali did, like right. uh, Bill Russell did, Kareem right. Abdul-Jabbar, they use, Jim Brown. They all use their stardom for a cause. Yeah. Whereas athletes today, you know, I don't want to do that. I might lose my shoe deal. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So. so yeah, I mean, I mean, I thought everything that they did was fantastic. I mean, did you agree with with how you know Muhammad Ali and Bill Russell? Oh, I loved it. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes. If they and if you know, if I had a name where they would invite me to be a part of that, I was yeah. done. I mean, LeBron James is pretty political. He 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 is now. Yeah. He wasn't before, but he yeah, is yeah. now. He's doing a great job. Yeah. I mean, that school in, in Cleveland, oh, my oh, God. It's, it is wonderful. It is really I don't great. like the way I don't like the way they're treating Colin Kaepernick. I know. I don't, I don't like that. So what, but, so when, so when you were, so tell me about like a little bit culturally, like when you were a kid growing up, um, uh, when did you, um, when you were growing up and you were like playing with your friends, during was there a time period where you you said you you always knew there was kind of a prejudice? Was there ever a time where you felt like a little bit protected against it, or did you just was it always something that was a part of your life? It, it was just a part. You know, yeah. I was I, I don't feel ever protected. You know, because it's it just that I was never afraid to step out. Right. You know, and and like my mom said, you know, she said, son. Don't try to be perfect. There's no one in this world that's perfect. When you make a mistake, correct it, be able to laugh at yourself, but don't yeah. take it seriously. Right. And, but, but, she, but she always kept me moving forward. And right. so I never had a chance to look back and say, well, maybe I should have done that. And, well, man, I didn't do it. No. You keep going. Keep going. So, I and, love that. And then, Yeah. And that's and that's what I learned about sports. Some mm. people, when they play sports, they have a bad game. They never get over it. Mm. But guys like Michael Jordan and all these big guys, that game is gone. It'll never happen again. Tomorrow's another day. Nice, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm going to ask you this too. Like, um, when there were some kind of like these big things that were happening when you were growing up, like that when Martin Luther King was assassinated and then Malcolm X was assassinated. And um, what was 
the mood? I know you were very young, but what was the mood then? What did you? What did, What were your thoughts about that? Do you, well, do you kind of remember? Okay, now you got to remember in college. Mm-hmm. You remember remember Angela Davis? Yes, of course. She, you know, she was part, she came to University of Mexico for two weeks. Did she really? Did you meet her? You know, you know, you know, uh, Newton with the Black Panthers. Yeah. He can't. Oh no, my! I, <laughs> no, I talked to Angela Davis. I talked to Newton. I mean, Are you serious? No, seriously. Oh my God! Seriously. Oh, it was. But you got remember that was during the seventies. It was during the hippie times, the Black yes. Panther movement. Yes. You know, I mean, all that. I mean, that was. Oh yeah, but see, they came to New Mexico. New Mexico was a melting pot. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So yeah, oh, they all came there, and I mean, it was, it was, it got a little nasty. It got nasty. <laughs> I bet. Oh yeah. I oh bet. yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so amazing like, that, uh, that you talked to her, and met her. She's still such an icon now. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah, but I mean, but she was like, she was nice, Maya. I think she had a master's or a PhD. Yeah, she does. Uh, I mean, she's. I mean, she went to she went to Europe. I think she went to Sorbonne. She she has like a crazy amount of education. Yeah. yeah. So I expected to hear this, you know, this eloquent speaker. Yeah. <laughs> we must. I think we caught her on a bad day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but the only thing is, though, everybody understood where she was coming from, because yeah. at that time, that's the time they uh, they, they start. You know, they were talking about the the church bombings. Of all these yeah. these, black, these, these white people, yeah. So I didn't really have anything against what she said. I, I was just surprised at her speech, but yeah. was I against her? No, because I knew what she was talking about. Yeah, because you know, they had they had just got finished bombing like four or five black churches. Um, they had dragged this black guy behind a a, 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 a car or a truck and dragged him to all, all the flesh that came off of his body. Wow. And so. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And so it wasn't like I was going like, man, I don't like Angela Davis. No, I understood what she was saying. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't have a problem with it. I just she just caught me off guard. The first ten minutes of her speech, I'm going, man. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And, but I understood. And so, and what about the bigger events like when when Martin Luther King was assassinated? Did you think that the country? was in trouble at that point or did you, or was it, what did you think during that time period? I thought we were in a lot of trouble. Yeah. I thought, I thought, it, I thought it was going to get worse than it actually did. Cause I mean, yeah. the university of Mexico, we shut down for three days. Mm. Yeah. We should, the school shut down. So I knew then, and then we saw the riots and, and we saw the riots going on and I thought it was going to continue, but, uh, Everybody put it in check. I thought we were in for a long haul. Yeah. You know, I did. Yeah. I, I thought there was going to be a lot of race wars. I thought there was going to be a lot of black and white against each other. Uh, we had a little bit of it, and then it died out. And, mm. you know, because James Brown, he came out and spoke against it. He wanted peace. And right. And, you know, you know, James Brown was like a, a big icon then. So yeah. he went to a – he put on a show – of a mixture of black and some white, and then everybody just kind of, and he wasn't the only one. It was a lot, and then, you know, other people were talk, uh, preaching, uh, uh, I forgot the other black guy's name that used to be with Martin, those with Martin Luther King. Uh, it was Abernathy. Like Paul, 
Paul Robeson, or was he an actor? Or was he a singer? Um, was he a singer? Uh, or, or was yeah, he, uh, all these movies are yeah, all these people came out, and they they want to follow up on Dr. King's piece, mm, and right. so everything calmed down. Right. You know, and right. I thought, oh, wow, they're going to continue his legacy. So his right. legacy of peace carried on to everyone. And right. But no, my I thought it was going to be. Oh, I thought all hell was going to break loose. Yeah, I'm bad. Oh, yeah. yeah, I did. You know? I did. I thought it was going to get ugly. Yeah. Know? But uh, a lot of entertainers came out, athletes came out, and, you know, they got all together. Your, did you talk, do you remember talking to your mom during that time period about it? Do you remember if she said anything about no, it? No. I called her and asked, is everything going? She says, I'm great. How are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine, Mom. She said, if you need anything, let me know. Mom, right. mom never cracks under pressure. Nothing right. bothered my mother. No. Yeah. But do you think she also kept it to herself, though, because she wanted to make sure, sure she that did. her kids were okay? You know? Sure she did. Sure she did. Yeah. Oh, you know? Yes, she did. Oh, yeah. yeah. Trust me. Oh, yeah. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. How was she able to make a living then, too, especially after your dad passed away so young? Well... She she worked at the hospital. Okay. She she yeah she had a job at uh, uh, for that name of the hospital. She was like a uh, you know helped out around the, the hospital. She was there for like twenty some years. Oh wow. You know, and then I had a job when I was in high school. So even though I was a, playing basketball, I worked after school and on weekends. Yeah. So I was so I I was bringing like five or six hundred dollars a month home to the family along with mom's income, so we, yeah. were, we were good. Yeah, we were good. So you helped her. So you helped her out with income then? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, what, what happened when you were – I want to know what happened when you were drafted. Like, what was that like? Because I, I saw that you were originally supposed to be in the ABA drafted to um, Cleveland. Cleveland. They didn't offer me enough money. They didn't enough money. <laughs> no, no. Because part of my contract, Whoever drafted me, they had to yeah. get my mother a home. Oh, I'm so, serious? That's so nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Cleveland said, well, we just gave this other player, Willie, a lot of money, but we can give you this. Yeah. I said, no. <laughs> I said, I said, I, I can make more, more money than that in a factory. And so right. Miami, right. Came, Miami came around and offered yeah. me the money. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get yeah. to meet any of the other kind of named players during that time that were kind of doing oh, it in the seventies? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, anybody yeah. In, yeah. anybody that was your favorite? That was nice. Doctor J. Doctor J was nice. Yeah, he was a nice guy. Doctor J was a nice guy. We would hang you out know together. That I, you did. Doctor J. Yeah, we played. Yeah. We both played in the ABA. Dr. No, I J knew that, but ABA. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, George McGinnis, Dan Esso, Will Chamberlain, Zimmel Beatty, all those guys. Did yeah. you meet Will Chamberlain? Oh, yeah. He was coach of San Diego Quistadors when I was with Denver. Yeah. That's, awesome. That's yeah. really cool. You know, yeah, I, met Dr. Jay's, I met Dr. J's daughter. Oh. Uh, yeah, I was locked out of my apartment when I was in Atlanta, and I, I, uh-huh. I was like, oh, no, I had, my key, I, I had left my keys at work. So I was waiting for my friend to pick up my keys, 
And a girl from a hall across the hallway said, oh, you know what? You can just come in here and wait here. You don't have to wait in the hallway. I said, oh, thank you. Go in. I go, oh, you got a picture of Dr. J on your wall. She's like, yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Then I looked around. I saw her. She had all these pictures with him. I was like, that's, oh, it is her dad. Wow. That's wild. Well, you know, you should write some of these things to, down to dad, like, you know, if okay. you haven't already, just write some of these ideas or just little, like little memories or whatever you have, you know, just, and okay. just write them down, you know, because, I, you know, people will want to hear it. I mean, you know, to me, I think people, you know, I think people think all that stuff, separate water fountains, you know, um, writing um having to be segregated in the bus. I think they think that was a billion years ago. But you're just like, no, that happened as a kid. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. That's I mean, right. That's yeah. just so wild, you know? I know. I, I, just, I just think it's weird. You know what? I'll ask you one more question. What, what did it feel like when Barack Obama was elected? Did you, because, I mean, I was very just excited about it because I honestly never thought it was going to happen. And honestly, in my lifetime, I hoped. But what did you think about it? Did you think anything did, about it? I did cartwheels. Did you? I was doing, I was doing cartwheels. <laughs> and, you know, and I did absolutely cartwheels. And like, I, and I still wear his shirt today. When I go out to the gym or walking around, I still yeah. got my Obama shirt. And I was, oh. I, I teach, I teach some of my friends at the health club because uh, they voted, they voted for Trump. And I said, oh, gosh. Do, do you, do you miss me now, don't you? They go. Boy, do we miss you. <laughs> not, not me, but come on, the shirt I'm wearing. They go, you know, when Obama was in office, Willie, I, you know, I, I didn't know how great a job he was doing, but now I understand he did a great job. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate, you know. No, love you, baby girl. I love you, Call too. me anytime. Call I me will. anytime, sweetie. I will. I will. Take, hey, take sis, care of it. I, 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 I will. I'll call soon, you know. Okay, and tell tell the big guy, my son-in-law, I said hello. I love you. Of course. I will definitely tell him. I'll tell Bobby for sure. All right. All right. Love you. Enjoy your day. Love you, baby. Love you. Bye-bye. My father and his family were deeply affected by Jim Crow, and it's totally understandable that his mother would tell him, never look back. But to be brutally honest for a moment, That's something my father was really good at. When he blew his knee out, he was about to enter the NBA. Basketball was all my father knew, and all of a sudden, his opportunities dried up. When he and my mother divorced, he disappeared for over two decades. He never paid child support, and at that time in America, single mothers were, and mostly still are, on their own. Even when President Ford set up a U.S. child support collection system in 1975, better known as Section IVD of the Social Security Act, it was really difficult to collect payment. Our country still has over $113 billion worth of uncollected child support. The policy was supposed to keep the financial aspect of the nuclear family together, even as the family split apart. Studies have shown that, quote, divorce was one of the single greatest predictors that a woman, especially a woman with a child, would fall into poverty, end quote. And that was especially true for my family on both sides. 
even though my grandfather, Dr. Belisario Contreras, on my mother's side, had benefited from policies that allowed him free college and the ability to buy a house with a VA loan, when he divorced my grandmother, she began to struggle with the bills and had to quickly run into another unhappy marriage. When my father divorced my mother and he didn't pay child support, my mother and us, her children, quickly fell into poverty. When my mother got breast cancer, she didn't have great insurance. I was too young to know what insurance she did have. I do know this. When she died, she was in the middle of a lawsuit that she finally won for being misdiagnosed. When the home that she finally bought from her hard work was sold, plus the money from the lawsuit, all went to pay her hospital bills. I divulge this very personal information because you see, all of these policies are connected, and so are we. These policies are not separate from one another, just like you and I aren't really separate. I would ask us all to take a step back for a moment and see how these policies connect and what they have in common. What I see is generations of discrimination through policy. I see policy that helps a few, but not the whole. Because you see, these policies are not intersectional. And we must show our policymakers how to see all of us and not just the few. Right now, I see policy that does the bare minimum, and that's not good enough. I've made peace with my father, but I'm not at peace with a country that is pushing the majority of its citizens into poverty while allowing the very rich to avoid paying taxes. I'm not at peace with a country that is not protecting us from gun violence, that mostly ignores the killing of black girls, boys, men, women, trans men, and women, that makes it difficult for the disability community to have equal access to transportation, a country that doesn't believe in a living wage that would help pull so many of us out of poverty, a country that keeps us away from affordable or free health care and college. I'm not at peace with a country that is trying to keep marginalized communities from voting. What my family has shown me is that policies that help expand opportunities intersectionally help us all. And policies that hurt marginalized communities damage us all. I know there are policymakers that will say this. Don't look back. We need to get over the past and move forward. Saying get over it is a racist and misogynistic idea because policymakers who say that have everything to gain by not addressing the issues of discrimination and inequality. It's a way for them to avoid accountability for all the policies that are still hurting us, like segregation, racist environmental issues, and housing policy issues. It's in all of our self-interest to take a look back even though it's not easy. It's something we have to do. Otherwise, we won't truly be able to move forward together as equal groups, which we are now. Let's just get that in legal writing. Thank you for listening. By the time voting day came, most of our people knew which type of government they wanted. Choosing the most workable form of government was the first step towards solving our community problems. Problems of maintenance and construction, water supply, police and fire protection, health and welfare. And we had learned something else. We had learned 
that it is the continued interest of the people of a community that makes its government good. Only if we participate in our government, whatever form, will we have a good community government. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.